welcome to Beyond the Crucible. I'm Warwick Fairfax, the founder of Crucible Leadership. Our greatest hits tour of some of our most helpful and illuminating episodes continues this week with a deep dive look, courtesy of one of the world's top experts on resilience, of the key questions we can ask ourselves and the actions we can take in light of them when setbacks and failures come. When we recognize that we have a choice, all of a sudden we've gone from being disempowered to empowered. And when we have a choice, that's power, right? We always have a choice, even if the choices aren't good. And that choice is in any inflection point, in any trauma we experience, in any grief, in any loss, in any unfair treatment, in any moment where there's a, a lack of equity or care or empathy, right? We get to ask ourselves a really fundamental, oversimplified question, which is, am I going to allow this to make me bitter or am I going to allow this to make me better? Now there's a question to write down, fold up, stick in your pocket, and pull out to ask yourself the next time you get the wind knocked out of you, or worse, by a crucible experience. Hi, I'm Gary Schneeberger, co-host of the show and the communications director for Crucible Leadership. The woman posing that question is Dr. Taryn Marie Stasekel, one of the foremost international experts on resilience in both leadership and in life. On today's episode, she discusses with Warwick her voluminous research and her personal experience with a stalker while in high school that led her to identify the five practices of particularly resilient people. She unpacks each one and concludes that while adversity is a trip all of us will take in our lives, resilience paves the road that allows us to move beyond those difficult moments. Well, Taryn, thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate it. Um, just love this whole uh, subject of resilience. I think we mentioned off air, I'm executive coach and heard you on uh, WBEX, which is a great uh, forum for coaches and you know, really thousands of people around the world. So it's an awesome community. And, uh, you know, I just, you know, resilience is something certainly I can relate to in crucible leadership. We talk about a lot and but you, you've done a lot, whether it's working with folks in Hollywood, the former, you know, executive uh, leadership development uh, head at Nike, and you've done uh, work at Cigna. So, and now with the five practices of particularly resilient people, it's just kind of an amazing story, but I'd like to kind of maybe get a bit behind the scenes and what led you to have such a passion for resilience, something about your background growing up. There's always a story behind the story. So kind of what led you on this journey to this passion for resilience? Yeah, it's a great question, actually. And there's a quote that says something to the effect of, I can't remember who said it, maybe the two of you know, you can help me, but it's this idea that our lives are lived forward, but understood backwards. Hmm. And so hmm. oftentimes when I think about resilience, it wasn't until many years later that I understood that a particular experience or, or moment led me to resilience until I was able to many years later sort of look back and connect the dots, right? Because so often our 
our lives, I think, look like maybe a, a jumble of dots. And it's not until we look back that we can sort of draw that line through and, and see a clearer pathway. What I will say is that I don't think resilience is for the faint of heart. <laughs> you know, there's some kind of internal metal. There's some desire to really show up for challenges in life and to figure out how do we continue to do that better over time? And I'm also a believer that so often concepts and ideas, you know, it's not so much that we come up with them, but that the concept or the idea finds us. So if I share that in a little bit of a different way, right? I think resilience found me through a number of experiences that I had in my life, right? And the, you know, the first time that resilience tapped me on the shoulder, you know, I was probably 14 years old and without knowing it, there was a morning before school where I was getting dressed and there was a man outside of mm. my window. And when I went over, you know, closer to the window, it was dark in the morning to turn off my stereo for those of you that are of the millennial or Gen Z, a stereo is something that played music. <laughs> yes, <laughs> of your cell phone. It you was know. your yeah. It was your iPod before your iPod. It was my iPod before my iPod. It was it was you know sometimes people used to carry them around on their shoulders. A very heavy iPod, right? So yep. you know, see me later, and I'll tell you about phone booths and butter churns too, <laughs> right? And other obsolete devices, and. So when I looked at the bottom of my window, right, it was, you know, on the ground floor, there's this face at the bottom of my window. And as the light went down this person's face, this man's face, and he stood up. And so he's standing just outside my window outside and I'm standing on the inside. And in my 14 year old mind, I'm trying to figure out what the heck is going on. <laughs> and what we do in those moments is we scan very quickly through all of our prior experiences to say, what else have I seen that might look like this to help me understand what's happening? And the only experience that I had had to that point at 14 that was even close to that was one time my dad came home from a business trip and he was outside the window and he was like playing a trick on us or, or something like that, like okay. knocking on the window, trying to scare us. And so that's what I pulled out of my mind in that moment, you know, within a fraction of a second or a second. And I said, dad, and he said, take off your clothes, you're beautiful. Mm. And I thought, not dad. Mm. <laughs> you know? oh my and so I went and called for my parents and they heard someone running down the street when they you know, went out on their upstairs deck. And for us, we thought that was just going, you know, that was uh, maybe just going to be the end of the story, right? We called the police, we made a police report and I remember the woman that came to our home said, you know what, there's nothing to worry about here. It's probably just someone passing through the neighborhood, probably just a fluke. And then eight months later that my parents were out of town, I always kept that window closed. And then the window in the back of the house, I think we didn't have air conditioning at the time. So the window in the back of the house was open for ventilation. And I'd gotten this new bikini from the Gap and I had taken off the bikini and I was completely naked. And I heard that voice again that was etched in my memory. 
I didn't know he was there until he spoke and he said, I've been waiting a long time for this, right? And for me, as a 15 year old, right? There were three sort of like inconvenient truths there, right? One, I was naked in front of a man for the first time. Two, my childhood bedroom that should have been, you know, one of the safest places for me as a young girl growing up became profoundly unsafe. And three, this wasn't a fluke as we had hoped or as we had believed. And what this journey led to was him coming back several times over the course of my high school career. And each time his behavior accelerating or elevating. And he was outside the window mm-hmm. all these times. He wasn't in, the, I mean. He never got in the house, although okay. the last two times that I'm aware he was there, he did attempt to break into the house. Oh. Once when I was home by myself, uh, he was throwing patio furniture up against a sliding glass door that just, you know, thankfully didn't shatter. And uh, there was a time where I was babysitting at the house behind my house. And I saw the figure of a man in the yard and he was advancing toward the house and someone started ringing the doorbell. And when we went to the doorbell, to the door, no one was there. Mm. And then there was a little girl who was a friend and her father came to pick her up. And I said, oh, were you at the other, were you at the other door ringing the doorbell? And he said, he said, no, I just got here, you know. So what happened, you know, sort of short story long or long story short, depending on how you want to think about that, is two things. One, I went away to college and his behavior, I think, continued to accelerate or or continue to downgrade. And he ended up attacking and brutally raping a a woman in my neighborhood and went to prison for 20 years. And Mm -hmm. I realized by the time that I was in my mid twenties, when I was getting a a master's in marriage and family therapy, you know, we were going through the, the DSM, the diagnostic statistical manual, where you learn how to diagnose uh, psychological or psychiatric diagnoses. And I was like, huh, I actually meet all of the criteria for post-traumatic stress disorder. And I didn't realize that. And as you look back on that, I mean, you probably thought, well, I guess they were wrong. This wasn't a one-off thing. This lasted months, sounded like it lasted years. It lasted years. And you probably did. You have one thought was, why me? But then do you think, as bad as it was for me, I could have been my neighbor. That must have That's been a right. weird, I mean, part of you was maybe grateful. Part of you was horrified. You probably, I imagine there was a whole sea of emotions of, that must have been a hard thing to deal with. And then now clinically understanding what you're reading. I mean, how did you process all that of anger? And you don't often think of anger and gratitude in the same moment, you know, like I'm angry, but I'm, I feel bad for my neighbor. I just, I know it's awful to say this. I'm just so glad that wasn't me. Right. It sounds awful to say that, but you have to be thinking that, right? Mm -hmm. But I mean, that's just the nature work, I think, of survivor's guilt, right? Mm -hmm. Is that that tension, right? That paradox that exists of both gratitude and sadness, right? A deep empathy for, you know, if you're crossing the street, right? And a car swerves and it hits the person next to you, you're like, oh my God, thank goodness I wasn't 
hit and oh my gosh, I feel terrible that another person was, mm. right? And that paradox of I'm safe, but this other person wasn't, you know, this didn't happen to me, but it could have, you know, navigating paradox in the human mind is not something that comes naturally to us. Right. It needs a lot of, um, I guess, training and processing, but so it's easy maybe for listeners to hear, Oh, we can understand why, Taryn's do you know, as her mission of life is about resilience, given what you've gone through. Is it that simple? Do you look back and say, if this hadn't happened, what would have happened to my life? Maybe I would have done something totally different than resilience and, you know, all the work you've done on there. Do you ever think to yourself, what, what would Taryn be without that episode? What would you have done? Right. Well, you know, I think that's one of the principles of how I think about resilience, because the definition of resilience after a decade and a half of research is simple and powerful. It's the idea that we allow ourselves to effectively address challenge or the challenge, change and complexity that is, you know, in our path and when we address that challenge, change, and complexity, we find a way over time to not allow those things to diminish us, but instead, you know, to alchemize that trauma, that grief, that loss, and to allow ourselves to be enhanced by that experience. And so on the one hand, I think it, it would be very easy for me and for other people that have faced difficulty to sort of be walking around saying, you know what, if I hadn't had this stalker, if I hadn't experienced two decades of PTSD, you know, what could I have become in my life? And instead, you know, I think the sort of the crux of resilience is that when we flip the script and instead of saying, why did this happen to me, right? To ask ourselves instead, why did this happen for me? Mm. You know? and, that, and that's so profound. I mean, that's so empowering. I mean, you know, we were talking crucible leadership all the time about failures and setbacks, and you have a choice in our language to either hide under the covers and wallow and say, oh, why did this happen to me? Or in the case of failure, it can be, why was I such an idiot? Because sometimes we bring crucibles on ourselves. Sometimes it is our fault. Sometimes it's not. Either way, it's pretty difficult. But you have a choice, but you made a choice. I'm not going to be a victim for my whole life. This was terrible, but I'm, I refuse to just cower and, you know, while away the next 40, 50, 60 years of my life until it ends. But you made that choice because not everybody makes that choice. As, as you, you study this more than I do, what led you to make that choice to refuse to be a victim, refuse to just sit back and just let life fade away. Yeah. Well, you know, we're, we're only given, and I'll quote another person whom mm -hmm. I can't give you the name, but you know, we're only given this one wild and precious life. Right. right? And when we think about, you know, the first thing to understand is that so often we don't believe that we have a choice right? Or, or people don't believe that they have a choice. So the first step is to recognize that you have a choice, right? It's not a default to say, well, you know, this horrific 
thing came to me and therefore my future is circumscribed to be, you know, this, right? We are the authors of our lives. We're the architects of our lives. We have free will for a reason. You know, there's also that quote of, you know, life is 10% what happens to us and 90% how we respond. So for whatever reason, I've always understood that I had a choice. I didn't have a choice about the experience, but I do have a choice about how I respond and the type of life that I live in response to that. And living a great life, living a whole life, you know, that's the best revenge, right? And I use the word revenge loosely, of course, but, you know, not allowing ourselves, again, going back to the definition of resilience, not allowing ourselves to be diminished by our experiences and instead find a way to alchemize that trauma, that grief, that loss, and figure out how we make it beautiful, how we make the testimony. That's redemption. I'm going to jump in because so much of what Crucible Leadership talks about and so much about what you talk about, Taryn, it's it's as if it was typed on the same typewriter. That's one of those other old machines that kids today don't know much about. Um, but there's a quote, one of the first quotes you have on your website from someone whose name I'm going to mispronounce, and I apologize to her in advance, Pima Chodron. Yeah, Chodron, I think, one of the first female Buddhist monks. Yeah, she writes, nothing ever goes away until it teaches us what we need to know. And Warwick has said this, in our lowest moments, we find strength, courage, and perseverance we never knew we had. You are talking about, you know, you're both talking one side of the same coin. You're in that the crucibles that we go through, the, the trials we go through, those things, if we address them correctly, if we look at them through the right lenses, they are a leaping off point to a better life. Yeah. I mean, this is an oversimplification, so bear with me, right? But when we recognize that we have a choice, all of a sudden we've gone from being disempowered to empowered. Mm. And when we have a choice, that's power, right? We always have a choice, even if the choices aren't good. And that choice is in any inflection point, in any trauma we experience, in any grief, in any loss, in any unfair treatment, at any moment where there's a, a lack of equity or care or empathy, right? We get to ask ourselves a really fundamental, oversimplified question, which is, am I going to allow this to make me bitter or am I going to allow this to make me better? Mm. I mean, it's funny, as I'm listening to you, Taryn, it's hard for me to just stop nodding in uh, violent agreement, <laughs> if that's a word, just because obviously listeners would know this, but, um, you know, when I read what you've written, I just feel like I've lived your thesis, if you will, and I can, everything that you're saying makes sense. I mean, again, it's list- I mean, my experience was obviously radically different. But again, as listeners would know, I grew up in a very large family media business, 150 years old, had the Australian equivalent to the New York Times, Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, TV, radio. I was sort of the heir apparent, was a massive company, you know, launched a $2 billion plus takeover for a variety of reasons. My dad had died and felt like the company wasn't being run along the ideals of the founder, it wasn't being run well. And 
whether it was that a good or bad decision, it's a whole question. But after three years, the company goes under, too much debt, Australia got in a recession. So I never thought of it as PTSD, but I had my own crucible moment in that a lot of the trauma I went through was brought on by my own idealism and naivety. I didn't mean to hurt anybody but uh, or do anything bad, but just the thought of I've single-handedly brought down a 150-year-old family company. You know, if you, my Wikipedia entry is not favorable. I have one. It's like young, hot-headed kid could have had it all in blue. It's pretty much what it says. Mm-hmm. And so that may never change. I don't know. But so for me, the 90s were a challenging time. It's like, look what I did. And, you know, I felt like I let my family down. And as a person of faith, some and the, the founder was a person of faith. I felt like, gosh, I'd let down the universal God in some sense. I mean, it was pretty heavy on a lot of levels. But eventually, as I clawed my self-esteem back, yeah, there was a choice. Am I going to let this define me? I mean, I, I own it, my whole Christian leadership. I talk very openly about my mistakes. I have a book coming out in the fall that goes into pretty exhaustive detail about my stupidity and naive <laughs> assumptions. And then explain how this can help others. You know, don't do some of the things I did. But as you're saying, as I started to claw my way back, find things I could do without screwing up and uh, find things that I was gifted at, all the things you talk about, resilience, it's making a choice, it's all true. It's not like there's no pain. It's unrealistic to say, oh, there's no scar and no scab. But I can talk about it now in a way that's vastly less painful. I don't know whether that's true for you. I mean, that's obviously you talk openly about what you went through, but I have to, I'm sure there's some pain, but it's probably a lot easier to talk about it's, than it was because it's you're using your pain for a purpose. I know that's an off-used aphorism, mm-hmm. but it's true. Yeah, I mean, it all makes sense to me, obviously. <laughs> you know, very different background, very different stories, but... Yeah. Everybody's, you know, it's funny. We have a lot of people on the podcast that talk about crucibles. And we've interviewed people like Navy SEALs that have uh, been paralyzed. And I'll often apologize because I didn't go through anything like what you've been through or some of the people we've had victims of abuse and all sorts of things. And they all say this. It says, you know, it's not like a competition of crucibles. Your pain is just as real to you as anybody else. And these are people who have gone through things a hundred times worse than I have. But I'm astounded how they can be so generous. Anyway, you get the mm-hmm. idea, but yeah. So, well, I'd say two things about that, Warwick, if I may. You know, one is so often we say to people without really thinking mm-hmm. about it when some type of loss or challenge or trauma befalls, you know, as we say to people, well, everything happens for a reason, right? You know, and anyone who's ever been on the receiving end of that, you know, like has tried really like has that on their hands so that they didn't strangle you, you know, or strangle me <laughs> when they said it. So, so I appreciate that. Thank you everyone for your grace. And what we realize is when we say to people, everything happens for a reason, mm-hmm. right. That orients people to look outside of themselves, right. Mm-hmm. For a reason, mm-hmm. right. Well, like, why was I disabled? Why did I experience this childhood abuse? Why did I have this stalker? Why did I develop PTSD? You know, no one can answer those why questions, right? Except for us, mm-hmm. right? So we can spend our lives searching to the answer for why. We can spend our lives searching for the reason, or 
we can take back that power just as we do when we recognize that we have a choice and we can say, here's how I'm going to make meaning out of what happened, right? So what I hear you saying is you're in a place now where you can look on what has happened in the past, right? And say, here's how I make meaning of what happened. And when we look instead internally to make our meaning, when we look instead to answer our own why questions, that's when healing occurs. Well, do you feel, and maybe this is obvious, but certainly in my own life, as I find I'm using what I went through to help others, there's a healing component, like a healing balm. It doesn't all go away, but there's something very healing when you're using what you've been through to help others. I mean, obviously you have your own experience, but you actually, unlike me, you've done a lot of research on this. Does that kind of make sense? There is a healing component yeah, to I using mean, what you've I, been through to help others? Absolutely. I mean, I'm very hesitant to use the word failure mm -hmm. because I actually believe that very, 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 very few things that we experience in life fall under the umbrella or like the actual truth of being a mm -hmm. failure or a mistake, mm -hmm. right? So my team used to come to me and say, oh my gosh, you know, we've made a mistake, right? right. And I'd say, well, have you made this mistake before? And they would say, well, no, no, we haven't. And I would say, well, in that case, it's a lesson. <laughs> the, the first time is a lesson, right? The second time it's a mistake, right? So Warwick, like, you're not going to take down the family business again, you know? <laughs> I mean, you learned from that, right? And to your point, and I know we're going to talk about the five practices mm -hmm. of particularly resilient people, this yeah. you know, empirically based model that really helps us understand what are those key behaviors that allow us to capitalize on, to harness our own human resilience yeah. in the moments when we face challenge, change, and complexity. And one of, one of those elements, the fourth practice, is the practice of gradiosity, right? Mm. And the practice of gradiosity is twofold. And we'll talk about the other ones. We'll start with number four. Yeah, absolutely. You know, the, the practice of gradiosity is you know, a compilation of two words, right? Gratitude and generosity. And it's the ability to, after some time, right? Instead of saying, you know, why is this happening to me? To say, why is this happening for me? You know, mm -hmm. to stop looking for an external reason or to answer that why question and to take on, you know, to empower ourselves to create our own meaning, right? And then to look on a challenge, even if we wouldn't have chosen it, and to say, I can see the good in that, right? I didn't want to take down the company. I didn't want to have a cancer diagnosis. And yet, I can see the good in what has occurred. Yeah. I mean, just to give an obvious example for me, I love that notion of, of gratiosity. You know, I was, I'm a basically reserved maybe a bit shy kind of person that's a reflective advisor. I'm not a Rupert Murdoch, take no prisons executive. That is just not me. I'm not this larger than life, bomb throwing individual. I'm more nuanced. So I was trapped in a role that I was not designed for, but out of a sense of duty and family history, I felt like, you know, loyalty is a big deal for me. I had to do this. Well, once that was over and I recovered from the experience, which took me a lot of the nineties, it's like, well, I can be whoever I want to be. So now with my writing and podcasts and executive coaching, was being on two nonprofit boards, 
I found, you know, I actually am good at being a reflective advisor at listening. Mm -hmm. Well, I wouldn't have had that opportunity trapped in a family business. That's my gratiosity, if you will. Mm -hmm. You know, it's Mm -hmm. very obvious to me. Oh, what can I be thankful for? Well, I was trapped in this gilded cocoon, if you will. Plenty of money, but, you know, I was trapped living living the life of somebody five generations before. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, does that make sense? I mean, it's empowering to have that attitude of gratiosity for what you've been through. At least it's obvious for me anyway, in my case. But does that make sense? Yeah, it absolutely does. I mean, I, I love just hearing the, the sort of like real-time application of, you know, here's the practice and you're like, here's how that shows up for me. And then, right, it's just what you said, right? Because the second part is that the osity, right? The generosity mm-hmm. is the ability to share those lessons, not mistakes, not failures, right? But to share those lessons with others as you are doing so that others may learn those lessons through you vicariously. Exactly. Mm-hmm. In, in our case, we talk about be who you were designed to be. Some people grow up in families where, you know, they've been lawyers for generations or doctors and you can do anything you want so long as you you're a doctor like mom or dad and you know lawyer and the same thing it's often common so talk about some of these other principles that you have of um these resilience principles because they're really they're fascinating so uh, where would you like to go next on our on our tour yeah well (laughs) what i'll just say to kind of close out this dialogue what you shared work is a really wonderful example of this idea that your story doesn't have to become your narrative, which I want to touch on for a Please moment. Please continue. I love that. It's hard for me to keep stopping nodding, but <laughs> forgive me. Please I love going. watching this after all these podcasts. I love watching this because it's like you're getting executive coached right here, Warwick. I love it. <laughs> Maybe you'll think of something, Taryn, that I disagree with, but it's been tough so far. I've been wholeheartedly agreeing with everything, but keep going. Well, I, I love it. The, the same wavelength. It's, yeah. it's a lot of fun. And, you know, one of the things that I share in the context of, you know, my work is this idea that our story is what happened to us, right? It's the thin mm-hmm. description of our life, right? My mother left me when I was a child, right? Um, people didn't show up for me. You know, I was, we never had enough food, right? So there's a sense of feeling, you know, financially or with regard to food, feeling insecure, right? That's our, those are stories, right? Those are things that happened, right? And what I've realized over time is that the danger isn't so much in what happens to us. It's how we incorporate those experiences into our narrative, right? And our narrative is our identity. Our narrative is our self-worth, right? Mm-hmm. So I could have said, you know, I had this stalker, I developed PTSD, and therefore the value that I believe I can bring to the world has been diminished because I've translated my story into becoming a narrative about my identity and who I am. And so what I love about what you're saying is that we differentiate between our story, what happened to us, and then what we tell ourselves about what that means in terms of our identity. Because what it can mean is whether it was your fault or not your fault, you can say, well, because of what happened, therefore, I have no value and I have no worth. Mm -hmm. Which it's hard for me to understand how 
failure is one thing. I get why somebody could think that. But when it's not your fault at all, mm-hmm. somehow, and you've researched this, which I haven't, somehow it, no matter whether it's your fault or not your fault, it can lead to a sense of, a tremendous sense of um, lack of self-worth, lack of self-respect, which how do you achieve anything? How do you do anything? So that's just, it's just so sad. But by being mm-hmm. able to switch that narrative story, I mean, it's, uh, you know, Gary, one of the things you end every podcast with is, uh, why don't you just tell Taryn in terms of the story, it's not, you know, the crucible's not the end of right. your story. So just share that because it's unbelievable. It's just exactly what you're talking about. But share that, Yeah, Gary. what we try to encourage uh, listeners with at the end of every episode is that they're crucibles. Those trials, tragedies, traumas, those things that have gone wrong, failure and setback, they aren't the end of their story. In fact, we say they can be the beginning of a new story, a better story, if you learn the lessons of them, as you've talked about, Taryn. If you learn the lessons of those things, it can be a better story because where it takes you, as you've learned those lessons, is to a a new life, which at Crucible Leadership we define as a life of significance. Yeah, and that basically mm-hmm. means a life on purpose dedicated to serving others. Whatever that means for you. Everybody's life of significance will be different. But that, so, but, I mean, as you hear that, it's like, that's what you're talking about. That's in part what you're talking about, right? About changing the narrative, using the narrative for good. So just as you're saying it, it's like, wow. <laughs> Joy yeah. is dropping again here. So right. amazing. Well, in this notion that you bring up, Warwick, of, you know, you use the word, you know, fault, right? Like, right. whose fault is it? You know, was it right. my fault? Akin to that is this idea of responsibility, mm-hmm. right? And what I've seen over time and, you know, being a marriage and family therapist and having worked with a variety of people that have had neurological injuries, spinal mm. cord injuries, brain injuries, as a result of car accidents and falls, you know, this idea of responsibility, right? Or who is at fault or am I at fault or who's at fault, right? That's a tremendously important inflection point in our healing, right? It's tremendously important that we get this notion of responsibility right, Mm -hmm. you know? And a dear friend of mine and a mentor, Richard Pimentel, right? Who was responsible for sort of the American with Disabilities Act. And there's a, a wonderful mm. movie that was made about him by a dear friend of mine, uh, Stephen Sawalich, called The Music Within. And Richard Pimentel talks about this idea of responsibility. And he, break, you know, helpfully, like, breaks it into two components, response and ability, right? Mm. And in the moment when something happens, what is our ability to respond, Right. And when we think about, you know, all of these things like you shared, Gary, these crucible moments, right, the challenge, the change, the complexity, the loss, the grief, the unfairness, you know, really accurately getting to a place where we are assigning responsibility is key. Right. It's key that we don't blame everybody else Mm. and not take, you know, and not figure out like what percentage of that you know, is our own, because when we blame everybody else, it means the control for our healing and our maturation is also outside of ourselves, right? And conversely, when we take on too much of that responsibility, you know, if you're a victim of being targeted or a stalker, or you've been raped or abused mm-hmm. in some way, and you think that was my fault, 
right? Right. We need to look accurately at, in fact, what was your ability to respond and really get that right as part of the healing process. I think that's so true. I mean, do you think, and I want to make sure we cover all these aspects. These, yeah, we have four more to go. We have four more to go. There is one thing I'd be, I'd be curious about is um, the whole aspect of forgiveness. I mean, certainly for me, uh, part of it was forgiving myself. Like I was young, 26, young, naive. I had had no intention to hurt, to, you know, cause pain to anybody. And there was thousands of people in the company and all. I mean, the company went on, but still part of it is forgiving others, but part of it's forgiving yourself. I mean, is that part of the component of being able to move on from a challenging experience that that whole assigning responsibility? And I've done a lot of that internal work of how much was my fault, which, you know, fair amount, not all, accepting, forgive, but how much, talk about forgiveness and how that relates to the whole responsibility deal. Yeah. I mean, forgiveness is a tremendously important element, right? So once we have, you know, accurately assigned responsibility and that can take some time and, you know, PS, it's always good if we have some skin in the game relative to responsibility, we shouldn't Mm -hmm. take none of it and we shouldn't take all of it, right? But but accurately assigning that responsibility, I love that you're talking about forgiveness. You know, forgiveness oftentimes, for many people, not for everyone, but comes from, you know, you talked about Warwick being a man of faith, right? It often comes from having a a spiritual or a religious practice and and is often informed, right, Mm -hmm. by those experiences. And, you know, for me, there's really three important things that we need to understand about forgiveness. The first one is forgiveness is for no one else but ourselves, right? And so often people say, well, I'm not going to forgive that, you know, they don't deserve that forgiveness. I mean, probably, maybe they don't, right? But fortunately, it's actually not for them. (laughs) You know, the forgiveness is for us. I mean, I mean, that's the scary thing is, yeah. I mean, we, we say this too, and I'm, I don't claim that everything you say, we say, because we're not that smart, but, you know, <laughs> but, but the notion that, you know, why is forgiveness important? Because you're worth it, you know? Yeah. You're worth right. it. And they win if you, you're bitter. For you to get out of that prison of bitterness, you're worth, you know, um, forgiving that other person or yourself, because then the power is removed. So it's, yeah, please continue because <laughs> I can't help but agree. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the first component to understand about forgiveness is is it's for you. Mm-hmm. It's not for anyone else mm-hmm. but you, right? Second thing to understand about forgiveness is that forgiveness is not the same as reconciliation, right? Exactly. So when we forgive someone, that's a choice, right? That's a decision that we make. It's not the same as continuing that relationship, going back to that relationship, continuing to, you know, be a part of whatever is happening. Nor is it the same as accountability. There are still consequences, sometimes legal consequences. Doesn't mean that we're lessening accountability or responsibility. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And and people confuse those two things, right? Exactly. You know, so if you're someone who's been in an abusive relationship, right, you can forgive that person. And you don't need to reconcile with them, right? Forgiveness is not reconciliation. That's two. The third part of forgiveness is oftentimes it 
takes time and it takes, you know, many times for us to say, I forgive you. I forgive myself, right? Oftentimes we are the hardest people to forgive, you know, forgiveness Mm -hmm. of self can be the most difficult forgiveness. And, you know, for me coming from a Christian faith background, it says in the Bible, you know, I think one of the disciples or someone, you know, said to Jesus, they said, you know, well, how many times do we forgive that person? Right. And Jesus says seven times, you know, 77 times, which is a a biblical way of saying forever, unlimited is basically what it's saying. You know, that's right. It's a metaphor, which is, yeah, exactly. It doesn't mean that we reconcile and we allow someone to continue to perpetrate something against us, but Seven times 77, you know, that gets us into the 400s, right? (laughs) And what I've found with, you know, the experience with the stalker, or I was in, you know, an abusive, you know, relationship where I was nearly strangled to death, Mm -hmm. you know, and I've probably had to say like 300 times, you know, not directly to that person, but in my mind, I forgive you. I forgive you. I'm letting this go. I forgive you. So, you know, the third part is oftentimes we can be the hardest ones to forgive and don't be fooled. Forgiveness is not once and for all, you know, that resentment, that anger, that lack of forgiveness, it can sneak back in and it can take 400 times until we really let that go. You know, and um, we'll move on here in a millisecond, but this forgiveness is so important. I often think forgiveness is a bit like weeding, you know? So weeds will crop up and, I mean, I've unfortunately had a lot of practice at this, both with myself and some other folks, family, advisors, you know, something will come up and sometimes you have people in our lives who, as soon as you've caught up with the last thing they've done, they do something else. It's like, hey, I'm trying to catch up. Can you just give me a a moment before you do the lob the next thing that I'm going to be angry about? But when I find these things, these little weeds crop up, I says, okay, I'm not going to go there. I nip mm-hmm. it in the bud. So it's, it is like weeding. You cannot let it grow and, and flourish. It, you just got to get on it, with, if that makes mm-hmm. sense. So talk a bit about some of the other elements because it's you know, vulnerability, productive perseverance, connection, and I think the last one possibly. Talk about why those are all important as we try to be resilient people. And also, I'll add something to layer on top, how they're all connected. Because you started at four, so how do they all connect, those four? Yeah, so you know the great thing is, this is an empirically based model. So when we talk about the five practices of particularly resilient people, it's based on having interviewed hundreds of people and collected thousands of pieces of data where I asked mm-hmm. people to think about a time when they faced a significant challenge and what did they do? What actions did they take in those moments to effectively address that challenge? And after coding that variety of data, what that gave birth to or what that gave rise to was the five practices of particularly resilient people. So first and foremost, to appreciate that this is, you know, an evidence-based or an empirically based model is, is really key, right? Because there's lots of things out there that are like, oh, the five P's of resilience, you know, and productivity and positivity. And, you know, I like alliteration as much as the next person, maybe a little more being a writer. Maybe you two work. Yeah, indeed. Indeed. Miracle base is important. So the the first practice that emerged, which is really a foundational practice of resilience, is, is the practice of vulnerability. Right. And I thought, you know, when that emerged as someone who has survived trauma, 
right? I spent my whole life trying to be invulnerable. I was over-programmed <laughs> to be invulnerable, right? To not show emotion, to not respond because of needing to be in those crucible moments with a stalker where I needed to think quickly to keep myself safe. And, and probably and so, not to talk about some of these experiences. Most people who've gone through trauma, they won't talk about it. They're not going to be vulnerable yeah. about it. Yeah. I mean, that's the second part, right? Which is, well, the first part is, so what is vulnerability in the first place, right? Mm -hmm. I'm glad you asked. So vulnerability is allowing our inside self, right? Our mm -hmm. thoughts, feelings, experiences to the greatest extent possible to match our outside self. Right. In psychology, we, we would call this uh, congruence, mm. right? You know, that what we're feeling and experiencing, we allow ourselves to show that to the world. And I think for the vast majority of us, reaching congruence or 100% congruence, we're living, our internal life is being lived on the outside. That's a lifelong process, it's a lifelong pursuit of vulnerability. And it's rare because most it's, of it's us rare. put it's on rare. mask again. I mean, this is probably getting boring for the listeners. That's one of my highest values of trying to make sure who I am on the outside is who I am on the inside. It's an extremely high right. value of mine. And I find as you share with people, like I'm blessed. I did my undergrad at Oxford and my did an MBA to Harvard Business School. I, I like I was embarrassed to go to Harvard Business School reunion because people would say, well, look what you've done. I mean, you've failed spectacularly. I mean, in business, this is not cool, you know? Mm -hmm. But you go to these things and people aren't treating you like a leper. There's like, you know, I mean, every, a lot of people have had business failures who've been in business school. And when they treat you like you're a human being, it's like, really? Uh, they're not saying unclean, you know, like in the Bible, leave the town. It's like, wow, because we have this notion in our head that if people really know how stupid I am or what I've been through, that nobody will want to be with us. We'll be like a lapper, right? And yeah. when that story is broken, uh, it's another step of healing. Does that kind of make sense? It absolutely does. You know, I mean, the first thing is, you know, you had a business lesson. Right. You didn't have a business right. failure. If you took down the company twice, <laughs> then that would be a failure or a mistake. But you learn from the first time. You're brilliant. Yeah, I, I haven't done any you know, failed two billion dollar takeovers since. So there you go. Learn <laughs> my lesson. <laughs> so that's awesome. So we, onward and upward, my friend. Indeed. Okay, that leads to productive perseverance. What is that? Exactly. That's a fascinating phrase. Yeah. Well, you know, we're short on time, so I'll just say yeah. one more thing about sure. vulnerability, which sure. is precisely what you said, Warwick, which. Brene Brown has talked about vulnerability and right. its um, role in what she calls living a wholehearted life. Vulnerability also showed up as a foundational practice of resilience. And so I asked myself sort of just that question, which you were alluding to, which is if vulnerability seems to be so important in, in sort of Brene's work of like living a wholehearted life and now being a foundational element of resilience, you know, why aren't we all running around living these like fabulously vulnerable lives, right? <laughs> like, you know, what, what gives? Right. And it's this idea of the vulnerability bias, right? Or exactly the sort of story that we tell ourselves in our heads, which is if people really knew, right? If people mm. really knew this part of me that's on the inside that I don't want to show on the outside, three things would happen, right? I, I call it the three L's that keep us from mm -hmm. block our vulnerability. People wouldn't like us, they wouldn't love us, and they might leave, right? And when you exactly. threaten people with, with ostracism, mm -hmm. 
-hmm. you know, what that's shown is the parts of the brain that are associated with physical pain light up. And we don't want to experience even the threat or the fear of that physical pain. So better not to be vulnerable and better to stay quiet. Right. Because if they reject my mask, that's one thing. If they reject the real me, infinitely worse. So many, if not most, don't want to take that risk. Hence the world we live in, whether it's politicians or Hollywood or wherever, it's a sea of masks. But um, yeah, so what would you like to talk about, like just in the closing minutes we have, just about some of the other aspects, these wonderful principles of resilience? Yeah, well, I'll give you a quick overview of the last three. Okay. And then if we ever want to talk more about them, we absolutely can. So the second principle, the second practice of particularly resilient people is the practice of productive perseverance. Remember when I told you I liked alliteration? Uh, So (laughs) it's this idea of knowing when to maintain the mission despite challenge. And that's very much aligned with Angela Duckworth's work on grit, right? Mm -hmm. Great book. Great book. And it's more than that, right? Because grit is not synonymous with resilience, right? Grit is a, a fractional component of resilience, but it's not the whole story. Right. So knowing when to maintain the mission despite challenge and recognizing that in the face of a, you know, significantly changing environment or a disrupted environment that we need to pivot and go in a new direction. Right. And this is very much um, an art and a science, because if you want to become a Navy SEAL or graduate from the Naval Academy, you know, those, you know, sort of markers are well-defined, right? And it's good to be put your head down and to be gritty in those situations. But in an environment relative to global pandemic COVID-19, where things are shifting and changing, we also must pick our heads up and look at how the environment is shifting and changing so that we can continually evaluate if the path that we're on is the right one, you know, lest we become a you know, a Kodak or a Blockbuster or a Blackberry. Hence productive <laughs> perseverance. Awesome phrase. So how does that lead to uh, connection? What's well, you know, next? connection in the midst of this pandemic is really the new currency, right? We're all wondering how do we connect with a remote distributed workforce, with our elderly parents, with our grandparents. You know, I held a 70th Zoom birthday party for my mom. Hmm you know, back in December and connections always been important in terms of resilience and it's no less important now. And again, inherent within each of these, these practices is a paradox and connection seems simple because it's twofold, right? It's the connection to ourselves, right? Trusting our gut, knowing our value, listening to the still small voice within cultivating and listening to our intuition on the one hand. And then on the other hand, cultivating and developing relationships externally, right? With our family and friends and community. And that's all well and good until those two things are at odds, you know? So (laughs) that's connection. We talked about gratiosity, you know, gratitude plus sharing generosity. And the last is the practice of possibility. It's the practice of, you know, at its core, being able to prioritize or privilege progress over perfection and the paradox therein of the practice of possibility is being able to navigate, you know, the tension between risk and opportunity, right? In these moments, in order to be resilient, we must, you know, hold both risk and opportunity, hold 
you know, both danger and possibility and allow both to be true. But there's something about possibility and sort of forward movement that um, I know in economics, there's a fundamental law of businesses, you're either growing or you're declining. If your status quo, then you're about to decline. It's one of these ironclad business laws. And I feel like maybe it's true in life too, perhaps that if you have a a possibility outlook of how can I grow, how can I improve, how can I use what I'm going through to help others, as you're looking forward to possibility, then you know healing can continue. If you start trying to hunker down and not move forward, then I don't know. Do you feel like life's a bit like that too? Absolutely. Yeah, I think if we're not evolving, mm-hmm. if we're standing still, we're probably devolving, right? I've been in the communications business long enough to know that's a good place to land the plane, uh, what okay. you just said. Uh, that is a bow atop the package to mix my metaphors. Taryn, I would be uh, totally, totally, completely lacking in uh, my job as the co-host of the show if I did not give you the chance before we go to let our listeners know how they can find out more about you, uh, specifically on this thing called the internet. <laughs> yes, yes, the internet, the internets. Um, yes. We'll, we'll invite you to take a look at the show notes for all the various and, and nuanced places to catch up with me. Two great places uh, to spend some time. One is on our Instagram page, Dr. Taryn Marie. We've got a wonderful resilience movement happening happening there and and basically daily kind of updates and, and resilience motivations. So that's really, really fun. And the second part is there's lots of free resources, articles, podcast recordings, you know, those types of things on our website, which is resilience with a C dash leadership dot com. We'd love to see you there. Well, thank you so much, Taryn, for being here. I mean, it's so inspiring, just all your work on resilience. And yeah, I am sorry, I just couldn't help but agree with everything you're saying. I mean, I'm just looking at one of your quotes, I think from Robert Ingersoll on connection, we rise by lifting others. It's just so true is all some of these things, I know they may seem trite like pain for a purpose, but as we try to understand what happened, yes, look at responsibility, vulnerability, but as we try and use those to help others, there is a healing component. You know, it, it kind of gives you a reason to get out of bed every morning. If how can I use my pain in a forward looking way to help others? And so Thank you for the work that you do and all the research and uh, just being vulnerable yourself because that helps people relate to you. If you're able to share something very personal, it's as well, if Taryn can do that, maybe it's okay if I do that. You know, So the research is critical, but so is showing up as a whole person in every sense of the word whole, if that makes sense. It really does help. The research and being vulnerable, the two together is a powerful combination. So thank you so much for everything you do. And thanks for being on the podcast and very much appreciate it. Uh, Thank you so much. Such an honor to be here. Thank you. Well, that certainly was a different kind of discussion than we've had before, based again, as we said earlier, on experiential crucibles, but then really deep research about the power of resilience. And If you enjoyed what you heard here on the show today, listener, uh, Warwick and I have a little favor to ask you, and that is that you would just click like on the podcast app on which you're listening, share this with some friends, put it on social media so that we can get the word out about the show because the more people know about the show, the more we can get guests, great guests like Dr. Taryn Marie. And until the next time we're together, 
we ask you to remember this, uh, which is sort of the motto of crucible leadership when you get right down to it. And that is that your crucible experiences are indeed painful. No one is doubting that. The conversation with Dr. Taryn Marie hit on that. It's very real. That pain is legitimate. What you're feeling is legitimate. But what you're feeling is not the end of your story. You can, as discussed on the show today, learn the lessons. Learn what is meant to be taught to you through your experiences. Apply those lessons to your life. And when you do that, we have discovered that it is by far not the end of your story. It is, in fact, the beginning of a new chapter in your story and a new chapter that can be the most fulfilling one yet. Why is that? Because the direction it will take you, as we heard in this conversation today and as we've heard in previous conversations, the direction it will take you when you learn the lessons of your crucible and apply them is the most fulfilling direction of your life because what it leads to in the end is a life of significance.